welcome once again to Everyday Holiness, a faith and deep podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and thank you for joining us. I'm very thankful to be joined by two people that I do know well. I don't always know our guests on the podcast, but I do know Josh and Stacy Noam, colleagues and friends here at the university. Josh and Stacy are both 98 grads from the university with their undergrad and got their Master's of Divinity in 2005. Josh is the editorial director of Ave Maria Press, just across the way. And Stacy is the director of human and spiritual formation and a professor of the practice in the Master of Divinity program. So, Josh and Stacy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Glad to have you. Stacy, I'd like to start with you. Could you just tell us where are you from originally? How do you think that kind of shaped you, where, where you're originally from? Sure. I would say I grew up on the Gulf Coast of Florida in Clearwater, Florida. I was born, though, in South Bend. I'm a South, from a South Bend family, so both of my parents went to St. Joe High School. We're high school sweethearts. Both came to Notre Dame. Mom was in the first class of women. And then, yeah, they decided when I was five to move down to Florida. And so I grew up there and then came back to Notre Dame when I was 18. How did the Gulf Coast shape me. I really feel like Josh and I could answer this question about each other, maybe better <laughs> better than that. I think it shaped me. Golly. You like the beach and the sunshine. I do like the be- water. Water yep, is a sure. big part of not only my life, but my spirituality, probably. That's mm-hmm. where I feel like openness and transcendence on a seashore, for sure. All kinds of great overtones for the movie Moana works for mm, right, me right. in a big way. <laughs> But also like Florida's the South and kind of not the South if you're on the coast. So we had all of those interesting flavors of what the country people will make fun of Florida all the time for the way that we go. So to the mm-hmm, country. Mm-hmm. Right. But then there's also huge retiree place. So growing up in the Catholic Church in Florida was like Vatican II didn't exactly happen, sort of did. <laughs> so that's kind of fun and interesting because I never realized that until I came back to, cam- to came to campus here as an undergrad. I'm like, oh, you can do that? Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah, it's funny how, well, you said you and Josh could answer for each other because sometimes it's like when you bring a boyfriend or girlfriend home and all of a sudden they're like, oh, that's different. You know, <laughs> it's sort of like, well, that's not how I grew up. So, Josh, where did you grow up? What was different between that and South Florida? Yeah, I grew up in South Dakota, very different context than Florida. Grew up in the Black Hills, which is in the eastern part of the state. Grew up in the mountains. My family, my dad, superintendent of Custer State Park, which is the second largest state park in the country. It's got the lar- the world's largest publicly owned buffalo herd. Mm. So grew up 15 miles out of town. Not uncommon to wake up and have a buffalo munching on our juniper bushes in the front of the house. So, <laughs> you know, waiting for the school bus, you had to keep a head on a swivel, you know, <laughs> looking around. Yeah. So coming here to, to, to school at Notre Dame, I felt like I was in a big city. Like mm. it felt like. <laughs> Yeah, it felt like I was in New York City and no Buffalo. (laughs) (laughs) I remember being struck by how it never got completely dark here. And I mean, Stacy studied abroad in France, which is a great experience. Mindset at the time was I I studied abroad by coming to South Bend, (laughs) which sounds ridiculous to me now. (laughs) Now, having been here South, we're like Midwesterners now. (laughs) But But it was was definitely different. Yeah, very different. Yeah. Yeah. It's always funny how people come here from all over and some people feel like, oh, my gosh, there's nothing going on here. It's a small town compared to the big city where I grew mm-hmm. up, but it could be it could certainly be the opposite as well. So, Stacy, you kind of had this tie back to Notre Dame mm-hmm. because you were from there. I mean, your mom, first class of women, that's a big deal. So 
where did kind of Notre Dame rank as, as you were growing up? Was that always an aspiration or was that something that you grew into? Yes. I don't think I considered any other school okay. besides Notre yeah. Dame. I mean, it was kind of just a yeah constant kind of trajectory out there. I definitely had my rebellious moments when I'm like, I'm super going to apply to Princeton, mom and dad. And they're like, <laughs> sure, go ahead. And then the moment comes, you know, and you're like, well, where else would you go but home? Yeah, I'm an only child, too. So I think now as a parent, I understand that it must have been really reassuring to them to send me from Florida to a place where there's family mm-hmm. and a known kind of atmosphere. And I mean, Notre Dame family for sure but also like actual blood relatives in town and friends of theirs that could be supportive. So, yeah. So they gave me plenty of space, but I really wasn't thinking of anything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Josh, how about for you? How did that decision come about to actually come to Notre Dame? It's actually got my roots. My journey to Notre Dame began with Digger Phelps, actually. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Long story. First time he's come up on the podcast. Is that right? (laughs) So my uh, my dad converted to Catholicism when he married my mom and married into an Irish Catholic family. My mom's maiden name is McGillick. Mm-hmm. So dad became an Irish fan when he watched with my grandpa the uh, the upset of the UCLA, UCLA. team and yep. broke the winning streak. And so I grew up a Notre Dame fan. I, there was a Travis Rendell was a, was a senior when I was an eighth grader and he got accepted to Notre Dame. I remember him walking into youth group or something like that. He was so excited. I'm like, oh, that can like. That could totally happen. Like right. somebody could do that. Yeah. So I made it my goal in high school and it's it worked out. So I was first in my family. I've had sisters and cousins come here in St. Mary's. Mm-hmm. It's kind of opened mm-hmm. a door for our family. Sure. Absolutely been a blessing for us. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful when you can see that happen. I know the university works so hard to, it's, it's that balance of balancing both the legacy mm-hmm. students who, yeah. who their families know and love the university, but also some of the first generation students or others who this can be life changing not only for the student themselves but for for their family and it's it's great when that when that actually happens on that point dan there's yeah. this really interesting moment as you're talking about this josh i'm remembering when you name it as like legacy balance with right so i'm obviously from the legacy space on both sides with my mom and dad and i remember doing my Notre Dame application and i'm not sure if the university still leaves this room but the idea that you can write a supplemental something uh-huh. if you have a particular desire to be at the university sure, for some reason sure and i wrote that you know one page essay straight from the heart And my mom read it and she's like, I don't think that's a good approach to writing this. I'm like, I don't care. You know what I mean? (laughs) It was one of those things where it's like, this is true for me. Yeah, this is true. And so I have to fit at this university, too, for myself. Mm. And so just naming that now, having children who are applying to college and having friends whose children are applying here who ask us sometimes about essays and writing that kind of thing. We just went on an admissions store for one of our kids. And even the admissions officers reiterated, like, just write what's true for you. You mm-hmm, know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that balance between legacy and first timer, like it's about the student, yeah. you know, really being the right fit and wanting this place and and that. So that's really hit home to me recently. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's I'm sure, an interesting perspective now that you're thinking about a third generation of domers in your family and and, and the changing landscape, of course, of college admissions and how that how that fits in. So when you were here at Notre Dame, where did you live and what were some of the highlights there of being an undergraduate here as you made the experience your own? 
For me, I lived in Breen Phillips Hall. I did a road trip with some friends who we all graduated from high school and then we did a road trip and went to Chicago and we found out our room assignments, our dorm assignments when we were gone. So my mom told me and she's like, you guys should drive over to South Bend and see. I had no idea where BP was on campus at all. So we drove over, got a picture of me even before starting in front of BP. I still have it (laughs) in my mind. But BP was great. My roommate from my freshman year, Teresa, we stayed together all four years. She was my maid of honor. She's God um, mother to our eldest son and yeah, dear friend. So BP was a really important place as far as those. Another really close friend of ours, Tamara, was also there. And we kind of flip-flopped when they studied abroad. We switched roommates on and off and stuff. So also godparent to one of our children. So those relationships in the dorm were really, really important relationships. And something I missed, I studied abroad. And I think the the only I thought I'd miss football. It was a bad season. But the only thing I really missed was the consistency with BP, like yeah. missing a sophomore year. Right. Kind of threw off a little bit getting back in stride. Mm-hmm. Not that it was impossible. I totally did. But that was a big part. Yeah. It always struck me as a beautiful thing of the Holy Spirit working, mm-hmm. <laughs> even in like mm-hmm. residential life and these intentionally random room assignments. And then you see that a lot where people just become there's these lifelong relationships that develop in our residence halls, which is which is a real gift. And I think something extra that you may not. Oh, it's a great Catholic university and football is exciting and basketball and other things. But actually, it's the relationships that they really stick with you. I mean, I think it was a really important thing to realize that what I learned as an 18-year-old living with someone so well was a lot about what it means to be in a community, right? Mm. Like, it's not about being like from the same culture or place or even doing things exactly the same way. It's about communicating around how do we do this well together? Mm-hmm. And I use that all the time with the MDF students yeah, now. Right. I mean, the lessons that started there with a roommate experience have absolutely helped shape the way that we do even that kind of human formation. Yeah. Josh, for you, what were some of the hallmarks of your Notre Dame community and experience? Yeah, I lived in <clears throat> lived in Dillon Hall. You talk about random roommates. My, I remember being at home. And getting a notification, they come in little slips of I paper. Was, I was on a road trip. I don't know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Apparently, used, my used mother opened my yeah, mail. Yeah. Now it's electronic, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my, and I learned cool. that my freshman roommate was Scott Senja, oh. who was the place kicker for the football team. So this was this was coming into fall of 94. So he was, you know, like three weeks in. It's kind of surreal for me. Again, I'm coming from the Black Hills of South Dakota. And all of a sudden, I'm in, in my dorm room, and Scott comes in after practice, and he's like, Man, Lou Holtz just ran across the field and like was giving me a high five for making a field goal or whatever. And like, I'm like in the middle of it. It was great. It was something. Yeah. So Dylan Hall. And then after a brief, a brief glimpse into life as an engineer and failing a couple of physics tests, I ran to PLS. And that was a nice, small community, community of learners, great conversations in those settings. And then also found my way into the full choir, Mm -hmm. um, which is a real Mm -hmm. gift. Yeah. Again, small community, but. I think back at that time in two ways. One is that it taught me how to pray, rehearsal twice a week in, in mass, even though you're working on the craft of music, just the quality of the music and the lyrics. And it was just, it was really prayerful. It created space in me. I think that I was missing from South Dakota, that kind of quiet. Mm-hmm. I could find that in in the folk choir and in the music. And the other was actually had the chance to sing under the leadership of Steve Warner. Mm -hmm. And I look back at my life now in the past 25 years as a creative developing a writing craft. He was the first person in my life who kind of like demonstrated 
what it could look like to be a creative person and, and serve the church with some of those gifts. Yeah. Down a regular job simultaneously. Yeah, you get paid. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, have a paycheck, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Yeah, you see, like you grow up in church and you see the names and the hymnals and all mm-hmm. the songs and they're just somebody else out there. But Steve is always like, oh, this this is someone who's doing this yeah. in a real way. And, and obviously had such a impact on the Notre Dame family that time and just the gift of the the full choir's music for so many years that continues on today, of course. Yeah, Steve was a great, a great presence there. So then you both met here during undergrad. So Stacey, I'll ask you about that first. What did you, what do you remember about first meeting Josh? Great question. So Josh and I had one of our first classes together. Mm-hmm. It was a humanities seminar. And the first thing I, so it was in kind of, you know, a square circle, if you will, right? The first thing I remember about Josh was how silent he was. So I don't think I had ever been in a class, let alone with a guy who was able to remain silent yet look completely engaged the entire time. I'm like, how do you have nothing to say? That's so interesting. (laughs) That was the first first impression. But then I don't know if it was a few days later, a few classes later or a week later or a couple. He came over, sat down next to me and introduced himself. So contrasting information where like he's incredibly comfortable in his own skin and feels really fine coming up and introducing him. It was very intimidating, actually, to have someone be so self-assured and be like, you're Stacy. I'm Josh. Nice to meet you. And I'm like, yeah. okay, great to meet you too. <laughs> Josh, what was going through your mind when you did that? Did you think there was anything more there or is that just sort of how you regularly were? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had a plan. <laughs> no, Stacy wasn't supposed to be in the class. That's right. So she had, you had some kind of schedule adjustment that you were working with an advisor on. I remember her walking into class and she had to address the professor, Marion Crow, is our professor. Mm-hmm. But she had to address our professor and kind of explain why she's schedules adjusting and she's coming into this class. And I remember first impressions, just she was really polite. I think that's some of that Southern charm. It maybe. was the Southern piece. <laughs> yes, yeah. ma'am. Really Thank pl- you, professor. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Really stood out. yeah, and just, I mean, she was gorgeous. So <laughs> note to the auditory audience. Yeah. She is not gorgeous. <laughs> some blushing going on here. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, so I had... Um, yeah, I kind of made a mental note. I'm like, I'm going to give this a couple of weeks and then I'm going to see what I can get going. Yeah. We were both studying chemistry. Mm-hmm. So that was my end was like, well, maybe we can ask her for some help on chemistry. I obviously needed help. <laughs> right. Right. Actually, that's kind of how it went. So we're in that small seminar together. But then we found, realized we're in one of those giant yeah. first year chemistry right, classes right, right. together, too. And both did abysmally on the very first exam and commiserated over those scores and decided, OK, let's let's at least do these practice sets and things like that together, accountability kind of partner. So yes, we studied chemistry together. (laughs) (laughs) And there was chemistry. (laughs) So when did that kind of develop into, we're going to start dating and think about an exclusive relationship? Definitely by spring. Well, I had a, I had the initial approach in class was like connecting over academics. Right. But then I had like the first out of class kind of like approach had to do with football as oh, well. Oh, that's right. Hmm. Yeah. So Stacy and a friend. I know a kicker. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Close, not exactly. Stacy and her friend decorated their face with face paint for a game. Mm-hmm. And they were sitting just a couple rows behind us in the freshman section. Okay. I was there with some guys in my section. And this is back in the days of the VHS, right? So the, the TV camera pans over us and catches Stacy and her, it kind of zeroes in on Stacy and her friend. Well, it also catches me and my my friends just a couple rows in front of her. 
And we hear about this later in the week because my friend's family saw us on TV right. and recorded it sure. on a VHS. Yeah. So two thirds of the way through the season, we get the hands on this VHS to see ourselves <laughs> on TV, which was super exciting, right? And then that was my end of Stacey. Like, oh, you're on TV. Do you want to see? Come on over to Dylan. Uh, that's, that's exactly how it went. That's right. It's funny. And Stacy, for you, all of a sudden, that was you know kind of shaping your Notre Dame experience. Was that surprising to you that you were dating someone even in your first year? And 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 did that give you any pause or just exciting or? It was lovely. It was completely gratuitous. Like mm-hmm. as an only child, I'm a pretty independently minded person. I absolutely entered Notre Dame with the focus on studying abroad. Right. And for a year in France. Yeah. Right. And that's our sophomore year at that point when they were doing the Angers program for okay. a year. Right. So, yes, freshman year. But I know that basically after that, I'm leaving for a year yeah. away. So on the one hand, it's like, wow, completely unexpected, gratuitous gift of really good relationship. And also, I'm not really going to second guess doing this other very important thing to me. So those were kind of hand in glove Mm -hmm. as far as the freshman year Mm -hmm. kind of experience of it. So as the year was coming to a close or whatever, I mean, we were both really clear on, you know, this relationship is going somewhere. Mm -hmm. And okay, how are we going to weather a year apart? Yeah, I think for both of us, we had a sense that this relationship had a different different horizon on it Mm -hmm. than other relationships we had been at. Just had a different, very different energy, and I don't think I would think. I mean, it shocks me to say this as a as a parent of teenagers and a twenty two year old right now, <laughs> but like even at that point, I was eighteen, nineteen. I think we knew that this was had long term. Right. There was there was something going on here right. that was going to be life impacting. Mm-hmm. And did her year in France help confirm that? Were there any? Difficulties with her being, you know, so far away, different time zone, limited technology. Yeah, difficulties is one way to put it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, I got the first uh, long distance bill. <laughs> I was like, this cannot, <laughs> this cannot continue. It wasn't cell phones. It was just, you know, like phone bills. Right? I mean, honestly, it was before email, really, right. too. Right, so we didn't even have that, really. Wow. So, like, straight up letters and telephone calls that you'd have to arrange way ahead of time because you actually had to be in the place where the telephone was. Yes. We would say, and we say to couples now that we work with for marriage preparation, like it really helped our communication with Mm -hmm. each other because it's so exciting to be around each other on campus physically, you're freshmen and getting to have like these life experiences. But to then like take a step away from one another and just work on communicating about things is is pretty formative, really. Well, you communicate differently in written form, too. Like you go really it lends itself to interior internal reflection. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I think we really grew in intimacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, given the distance, it's ironic to say that, given yeah. the distance. Right, right. Really grew in intimacy there, yeah. knowing each other. Yeah. yeah. And we were pretty careful about it. So, like, we made a point of I went out and visited his family before I left so that, like, you know, you can kind of get a whole sense of what's life like back for him at home. And then he made a visit to Florida right before I left. And then he got to come for spring break the year I was studying abroad. So getting to even share some of France and Angers with him was delightful. Because now he has that in his mind too. It's not just an isolated experience that I have. It's a shared experience of sorts. So that was really important. Good, good. Well, and I know, you know, towards the end of your Notre Dame career, you know, your relationship got pretty serious. It was probably impacted by that depth of intimacy that you got to with that year apart. So could you tell us about sort of as you were rounding out your Notre Dame career, how you were thinking about the future? One interesting angle here is that, you know, through high school and in college, I was also discerning priesthood. Mm-hmm. And I think people had told me growing up that I'd make a good priest. I knew the church needed priests. It was something that I was taking seriously. Stacey was really patient with me in that conversation. 
So there were some interesting kind of like developments, I would say, probably took place after that sophomore year that started to move us more definitively towards marriage. In my own discernment, there was a sense that we just had to be kind of open handed, like it kind of turned a corner when I realized I was kind of white knuckling it. I was like, I really wanted this the excitement. This the excitement of this relationship with Stacy was was really gripping and interesting and compelling. And I also felt this like kind of obligation to pursue this path to the priesthood and finally kind of came to a moment where I was able to just be open handed about it and turn myself over to say, I'm not going to be fully happy with whatever I choose. It's only if I can turn myself over to what God wants for me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's where I'm going to be the most happy. Yeah. And that just opened up a lot of freedom for me to be able to see what was right in front of me. And I guess when I looked at it from that perspective is pretty obvious, you know, Mm -hmm. and I tend to be a thinker more than a feeler. And so like, it was easy to kind of abstract that vocational call and think this is something you should do or all the cards are kind of lining up for this. Yeah. But when I actually looked at the circumstances of my life and how God was acting in my life, there was like huge, (laughs) huge blaring (laughs) sirens, you know, over the head, head, like, duh, take a look at what's (laughs) bringing you life right now, you know? So yeah, that was an important moment. And then there was a moment too that Happened in October. We got back. Stacy got back on campus her junior year. Every day I'm waking up, I'm just like thrilled. Like, I, when's the first time I'm going to be able to see Stacy? It was like studies and Stacy was was the thing. Yeah. And then there's got to be like a week in October. I woke up and it's kind of like I didn't think of Stacy first thing in the morning. You know, like classes are going on and stuff. And I was you start to wonder like, oh, does this mean like we're maybe falling out of love? Is what does this, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Got really nervous and. Had a formative conversation with Father David Scheidler from mm-hmm. the Folk Choir. Yeah. Passed away great just a couple man. of years ago. And he had some great insight about that. Just the sense that every relationship starts out with this level of excitement. In a lot of ways, it's biology. It's a great gift to kind of like bring people together. But there's also any relationship that goes distance kind of settles in right. too. And you need that. And that kind of wearing off of that excitement is a gift because it allows you to see the relationship with clarity and allows you to make a choice. You're not just being driven by by the excitement. So that gave us assurance too. And I would say by that point, by midpoint in junior year, we were well on our way to to looking at marriage. In fact, when our parents came to visit for junior parents weekend yeah. in February, we both, we sat them down together and asked for their blessing wow. uh, for marriage. Because yeah. two weeks later, we had to call the Basilica to reserve it for <laughs> after our senior year, like that timeline. Yeah. yeah. So Stacey, were your parents surprised at the speed at which this was developing or, or kind of what was their reaction as they saw, you know, kind of the goodness of the two of you together? Sure. No, I don't think that they were. Again, I said they were high school sweethearts, so they probably had a lived experience of what is it like to know that you're in a relationship that isn't tomorrow going to re- result in marriage, right? Like right. that there's some time there. And I think they saw that with us as far as they know that we were together and seriously together freshman year, but, you know, there's still time um, behind that. Also, my parents were married at 22 too, mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So the idea of us getting married right after graduation wasn't that unusual to them in many ways. It was following, you know, similar pathways that would have been kind of normative for them. Yeah. Yeah. And once you got to that point, I mean, you have the unique, somewhat unique experience of as soon as, you know, shortly after you graduate, you did get married. So we got married before we graduated. Oh, so okay. the day after... <laughs> The way that it worked out that we figured the best way to do like people coming from Florida, people coming from South Dakota and everyone who are our friends on campus was that we reserved the Basilica the day after finals. So we had finished all of our finals (laughs) on Friday and on Saturday we got married and then we had senior week where our parents hung around and we all shared a house. 
<laughs> and then we graduated. So technically then, we were married. Did a honeymoon after that. And then did a honeymoon yeah. after that. So technically we were married before graduation. I turned in I turned in my last paper for PLS and then walked to my rehearsal. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that, that I, 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 that's we never had that on the podcast or any other Notre Dame story. I tell you but, though, it was great. Yeah, it was a great yeah. party. I oh mean, my goodness! All our friends were here. No one had any classes. Sure, yeah, here. right. It was it was a good time. And it was real easy to be able to say. I mean, we both come from very large families. Mine's a large Catholic Polish family. He's got the the Irish folks and so on. But also. It was easy to say, we're having a family reception. Come to the wedding, everybody. We're having a family reception first, dinner, and then come for the dance portion. So like we had the fencing team, BP, Dylan, PLS, all the folks I studied abroad with in France, full yeah. the full choir, like huge groups of people yeah. coming. So it was really quite the party. It was fun. Yeah, and people that would not have been able to make your wedding totally. a couple months later, yep. a year later, yeah, that's right. like that. So, yep. and then all the family just too. a beautiful celebration with all all the people who were dear to you. There's also that early excitement in the first year or so of marriage, but then you also settle in, as you as you mentioned before. So, Josh, what were some of the ups and downs in early married life that you think back on now? Yeah, wow. Just the task of learning to live together, sharing a house together. Mm-hmm. That's very different than meeting up and spending most of your day, but going back to your, your respective places mm-hmm, to mm-hmm, live. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We've got different preferences around where the towels hang and, you know, like. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, a really big one was that his family is kind of prankstery. And we first moved to South Dakota for the summer. Um, and Josh was a forest firefighter. And so they knew the little house slash apartment. It was tiny one room place that we had reserved and it's just a small town. So they got the key to it okay. and like, <laughs> like pranked up the whole thing. Like yeah. talking slidey, you know, doorknobs, right, right. Rice Krispies and yeah. all the drawers yeah. and like, you know, <laughs> smeared uh, mirrors that you can't watch. It's like saran wrap over the That's toilet the seats, not- all <laughs> of the things. Sounds like the episode, an episode of the office. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, but all the things at one time. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so we walk into this space. I'm far away from home. I've just married Josh. He's laughing and just laughing when he yeah. finds new things. Right. I'm like, this is the way people welcome people around here. <laughs> right? So when you talk about the ups and downs of first years of married life, I would say in the first months, there's a lot of identity stuff. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, who am I anyway as a married woman at 22, college grad, right? And who are you <laughs> who I just yeah. gave my life to forever? Yeah. Like, what is going on? So I think the identity questions are big ones because you're no longer an I, but a we in a really, mm-hmm. really tangible way. Mm-hmm. Family systems are colliding there, too. Sure. Like absolutely. Where you're coming from and communication patterns. Your family is Polish, but the, it, being with them feels like you're with Italians. <laughs> to me, anyway, it feels like you're with Italians. Like, you got to speak up or else, you know, they're going to keep on trucking. You're, yeah, yeah. you're not going to get your chance to say anything. And yeah, I know you have your own experience with my family. And so negotiating all that is yeah. it's work, mm-hmm. you know, like you have, yeah. to, you have to figure out how to reach for one another and all that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We tell them the couples that we're working with for marriage prep, that first year is heaven, but there's a lot of it that's kind of like, it's maybe not hell, but it's purgatory. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> You know, like it's- You're dying to sell. Oh, yeah. for the absolutely. Other. Yeah. It's completely the like Paschal spirituality, yeah. right? Like you have to be willing to die to yourself and go through that to see the new life. And the new life is not the same life that it was before. It's new, it's different, and mm-hmm. it's abundant because mm-hmm. God is faithful in this like sacramental relationship that we have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you- Living all that, figuring that out, and then kids come along, and that's a, a new wrinkle, of course, and another self-sacrificial ask for you. So when did kids come along? What what was that experience like? So 
we decided to be Jesuit volunteers. So we went to Alaska to be Jesuit volunteers for mm. a year. And it was just the most formative, beautiful time. Alaska is heaven on earth. And so we wanted to re-up for Jesuit volunteer JVC International. Sure. JVI. And they accepted us. So they accepted us as a couple to go open a new placement in South Africa. Wow. And then a month later, we found out we were expecting Oscar, mm. our first son. So they would take married couples. They would not take married couples with children. Right. So like... Yeah, like yeah. super halt. Not only, you <laughs> know, are you about to have a child, yeah. but also you have no future because you're living at the poverty line. Mm-hmm. You have no jobs for the next year. The plan for the next year just got thrown completely out the door. So that was a big trust moment. <laughs> yeah, freaked out there for a little bit. Josh I- broke out in hives. <laughs> <laughs> Like literally. Well, remember, I'm, I'm a PLS grad, right? I have like no employable skills in one way. I mean, I could, I, it all worked out great because PLS gave me all kinds of skills to be able to learn and adapt. But like entering the job market, like I can, I can write, I guess. Yeah. You, you want to talk about Aristotle? Like, right. I can do that. <laughs> but again, like God was faithful in that too. So we were like scrambling to try to find work. And we got two job offers, one in South Dakota near Josh's family, one in Florida near my family. And we decided to go to Florida and Josh became the editor of the Catholic newspaper in Florida, the Florida Catholic. So for the Diocese of Venice. And it was a beautiful place to kind of just take baby steps to kind of start our family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It really was a moment though where we both, this was an unexpected pregnancy for us, Mm -hmm. but we had the conviction that God was part of this new life and God would lead us and God was totally faithful. And that's, I think we both had that impulse of faith, that grounding in faith going into marriage, but that was the first time we were like, oh, like. It was like a road sign in the road. yeah, Yeah. Like let's, yeah, this is really where it has to hit the road. And, and it was, and I think that's been pretty important for us moving forward. It's like, you know, trusting God. Yeah, because you really have to trust. But then a little bit of hindsight now, you can look back on your son and your family's life to see where God was faithful. But in the midst of it, (laughs) it's blind trust because you're you're not sure how this is going to work out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So how long were you down in Florida? Kind Mm -hmm. of career-wise, how did things develop for both of you? So again, Josh was working for the Florida Catholic for the diocese. And I had, when I was a Jesuit volunteer, I actually, you talk about like the coherency of life and Mm -hmm. hindsight, right? Mm -hmm. And especially vocational paths and journeys. I actually, my work was as a, an advocate for child survivors of domestic violence, sexual abuse. Mm. And so the diocese had a task force on domestic violence and they asked me to be a part of that. And then they asked me to be the coordinator for the family life office mm-hmm. in a diocese. So Josh and I basically are both working for a diocese. We have our, our son, Oscar, and we're trying to figure out like, what are next steps? We know that we're not always going to do these things. Maybe we'll go to grad school. And both of us kind of independently discerned we want to work in the church. Like we feel called to full-time ministry in the church. Mm-hmm. For me as a science major, that was quickly followed up with, I am absolutely not prepared for that. Like I don't have the theological grounding or the, so I need further training and formation. So we were in Florida for about two years mm-hmm. and again, separately discerned grad school and probably different theological studies. And then still separately, but both arrived at the MDiv at Notre Dame as mm-hmm. far as like, that would be probably the right kind of formation and training that we'd be interested in. So we applied for the MDiv program and got accepted. So we're the first couple to go through the program as a couple. Mm-hmm. There've been two since us that have gone through as couples yeah. and many who have met. In the yeah, program. right. <laughs> <laughs> for me, for me, just to kind of backtrack a little bit and to redeem PLS <laughs> a little bit here too. <laughs> you're, no, you love it. <laughs> You know, I, we were looking for jobs in Alaska and I had a friend, Colin Hutt, who's a graduate, Colin and Colleen Hutt. 
Colin was leaving a position in the Diocese of Venice mm-hmm. uh, where he was editor and reporter of the diocese newspaper. And so he encouraged me to apply. Now, I had a semester of journalism in high school. So I like I knew you write you begin a, a news article by like who, what, when, where. Yeah. <laughs> like that's like the limit of my expertise. But I uh, made a good application and got accepted for that role. And it was totally my training in PLS mm-hmm. that not only taught me how to write, but how to learn. I was asking the right questions. I had a good editor, but asking the right questions and being able to get to the, a lot of like what you're doing here, right? It's like you're listening to stories, but getting to the heart of the story, sure. like what makes someone tick or what what's at the bottom of a situation. And it was a fascinating time to be in journalism, in Catholic journalism, right? We were there during, we were in Florida during the election crisis in 2000. Mm-hmm. The terrorists who, who flew the planes into the buildings of 9-11 learned to fly in Venice. In wow. Venice, in our diocese, in the city, oh at gosh. that flight school. Wow. So there's, there's- when George Bush found out about it, he was sitting in a Sarasota classroom in with children. Diocese. So he was yeah. in our diocese wow. when he found out about it. There's a family who lost a son in the towers who lived just two blocks away from the flight school. And so I got to interview them. And then, of course, the clergy sex abuse crisis struck then as well. And so, you know, I was in Dallas for the bishops meeting when Scott Appleby talked and, you know, they first started to address that. So just a lot of things going on. It was it was a fascinating time to be be a part of that. Right. So then you came to the MDiv program as a couple with a child. How is that different for you all than the typical maybe MDiv student? Yeah, well, we had to figure out how to balance everything. I think it was a grounding. I think right. One thing we think back on that time with is like we were students, but any kind of sustained study like that can be all consuming. Mm-hmm. And so having the anchor of family life kept us kept us grounded. Like we had to kind of hand off care and yep. rhythms of life and spend time at night writing papers and all that. But there was always time in the middle of the day when you're a family. I mean, I would say, and I would still say this is true of any kind of formative experience. The MDiv is an intentional formation program, but also like football teams or architecture programs. You'll play the way you practice. And I think being in the MDiv program together as a couple trying to navigate what does it mean to be students and parents and spouses You practice that as a student, but that's what ministry looks like in life, Mm. right? So like when we leave the MDiv program, we still are going to have to navigate who's working when, who's with our children when, what's going to, right? And so we had three years in kind of a carefully cultivated environment to practice those things. And then we've lived into them. I would say the habits that we, I'm not going to say perfected, but honed here Mm -hmm. were the ones that we've kind of carried through, right? Just as you said, the absolute priority on like, if Oscar's awake, if our son's awake, our child's available, our attention is on him and being with him in the fullness of that. And then it's our responsibility to use the other times because there are plenty of other times, you know, when he's in a nap or he goes to bed earlier or something like that. We have to be very kind of efficient with the other work that we're doing. And I think that helped us prioritize family first, work and life of that nature mm-hmm. second. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Sometimes I think back on my undergraduate time here and I, oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. But there's nothing like having marriage and, <laughs> right. and kids. I think, right. I had so much free time. <laughs> so much free time. You get very efficient yeah. Yeah. with the things that, that have to be done. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So after the MDiv program, there's mm-hmm. another discernment there because right. now you both have Masters of Divinity. So right. you both have 
job opportunities and you've lived different areas of the country, you're from different areas of the country. How did you discern that as a family about what yeah. to do next? So we actually had beautiful, again, advice. So many people from the Notre Dame community have always impacted us. In this case, John and Sylvia Dillon, I had been working in marriage preparation as one of my ministry placements through campus ministry here when they still kind of did that piece. And they just gently said, you guys are about to look for jobs. We looked for jobs together. So we put ourselves forward as like a package deal mm-hmm. to share positions. It's not for everybody. You might consider it. And so after talking about it, we're like, that hits all the markers for what we'd like to do. We would both like to work and feel called to serve the church professionally in this way. But we also feel called to have one of us home with our children. So how do we do that? So when we applied for positions after MDiv program, we were applying as a couple. Like we were sending two applications with a cover letter that explained what our hope was. We ended up, again, having interest from the Diocese of Rapid City in South Dakota and the University of Portland in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And thanks to Father Ed Obermiller from Congregation of Holy Cross, Father Bill Beauchamp, they were open to it. They had never had a couple share a job, but and maybe it's the Pacific Northwest. I don't yeah. know. But they were out, they were willing to entertain it. Okay. Right. So okay. they were willing to say, like, what could this look like? How would this go? And thanks be to God, that's where we ended up. And it was just a beautiful way to land after the MDiv. And then we quickly had two children after that. So we have this gap between Oscar and Simon Peter that's about like five years. And uh-huh. people are like, oh, and I'm like, well, that's grad school. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right in there. <laughs> a couple things going on. Yeah. And then we had a son named Simon Peter of Wojtyla. So that's the entire papacy. Can you tell that we studied yeah. theology? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. The moving out to Portland piece. Yeah, Holy Cross. We were both deeply formed by Holy Cross, obviously. Sure. You know, sure. Talk about Father David Chidler, who lived and studied with Holy Cross here as undergrads, but it was in graduate school studying with oh, uh, Holy Cross seminarians. Oh, yes. And getting to know the life of the congregation and the religious life of the guys that we studied with was really inspiring and, and really fell in love with the congregation, I think. So the opportunity to follow and be involved with the congregation and collaborate with them right. in Portland was really enticing. I have memories of, of us being in grad school and having seminarians over for just to hang out and have drinks or whatever in, in the evenings. And it's time to put Oscar to bed. And we all kind of gather in our living room and we're saying prayers, night prayers together, our, our family rhythm of night prayer. Mm-hmm. Send Oscar off to bed. And then later in the week, we're over at the seminary for Lucinarium and their yeah. candlelight service, you know, yeah. and that's evening prayer in their in their context. Mm-hmm. And even though it's lived very differently, it's the same call to yeah. holiness. It was such a gift to be able to see to be with people who had that same commitment that we did, lived out in different ways. It's a real complementarity of vocation, but even complementarity of vows. Like the way that they're good and true to each other is the way that we as spouses try to be good and true to each other, but also the way that they live poverty and obedience and all of that is not alien to what spouses try to do as well. And in the church, poverty is a real thing. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially split in one job. That's right, exactly. <laughs> so those years in Portland, anything else, Josh, you wanted to bring up about those? I know since you're here, you didn't stay there forever, but anything else about Portland that was very fruitful for you? Yeah. Well, as Stacey mentioned now, it was a really good time to grow our family and find our footing as a family identity, I think. You know, Oscar came along and then grad school and we were finally in a rhythm there. We were in Portland for seven years. And then, um, you know, there was like kind of a vocation within a vocation that was unfolding for mm-hmm, me mm-hmm. there in terms of writing. It was something that kept coming up in my, I was doing campus ministry, but then writing these really long year end reports, you yeah. know, <laughs> <laughs> but I also got to witness, we talked about the role of Steve Warner as kind of like a model of a creative. Yeah. I got to work at the University of Portland with Brian Doyle, fellow graduate of the university. Yeah. 
and just an amazing, amazing writer, right? He was editor of Portland Magazine, a number of uh, novels and just thousands of essays. And seeing his voice and kind of the way that he was able to represent the university and and speak of the faith, speak of something living about the faith in a way that's deeply human and compelling and interesting and funny and witty was just really, really compelling. It's just like kind of like, oh, again, in the same way that it was like Travis Rendell and with me as an eighth grader, it's kind of like seeing Brian Doe. I'm like, oh, that someone could do that. You could be a writer and and touch people's hearts. So that opened up something for me there, I think, that's been really important in, in the time since. Yeah. On my side, I would say that at the University of Portland, as part of my work, I got to work with intentional faith communities mm-hmm. on campus, mm-hmm. which was like a deep passion and love to do community formation. We also consistently worked with the Jesuit volunteer communities in Portland. So like we were the support couple for one of the houses. We would do orientation around communication and community stuff. And then when this position came open in the Master of Divinity program for human and spiritual formation, it just made so much sense, again, with that like coherent line of vocation, right? Like one thing in Alaska led us to like the diocese. And now here's another one where like this community work that we've been doing with the position at the university here, getting to continue not only community formation, but in the context of training ministers for the church Mm -hmm. was like this really precious opportunity, but also one that just made so much sense as a flowering of something that had been there for so long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Josh, for you, was that a hard decision to come back to Notre Dame with Stacy, or was that very natural for you as a family? Oh yeah, no, it was... soon as Stacy had the opportunity to come back here, it was super exciting for me to think about her in this role mm-hmm. and knowing that the church needed needed this. She had skills to bring to it. It, it was a no-brainer, I think. And yet really painful to leave Portland. Yeah, it was tough. Like yeah, the, yeah. the community on campus at the University of Portland, again, deeply shaped by the Congregation of Holy Cross, is just precious in very unique ways. Similar in some ways to name, but distinctive in some ways. Mm-hmm. Especially the lay, lay collaboration with the congregation is really beautiful there, too. And it was actually Brian Doyle, a piece of writing from Brian Doyle, when I got on the plane to come here just for some extra meetings prior to the whole family moving. I read this paragraph from Brian and it was the first time I had started to cry, like mourn leaving Portland, even though deep affection and excitement about coming back to Notre Dame, because he just has this voice that manages to name the feelings, like Mm -hmm. name all that is best and good in us. Right. Mm -hmm. And it really matters to have others name that and be able to like facilitate again, that like grieving period and preparation for the next Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We can both feel both those things at the same time. Josh, I know that eventually, as you came back to Notre Dame, Faith ND yeah. came into your life, <laughs> yeah. which is eventually how, how you and I met. But we've got a lot of uh, loyal audience of Faith ND now. You were there in the early days. Yeah. And we certainly stand <laughs> Gosh, on. Gosh, I think it was Pray ND. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah so back, it was, it was Pray ND. And then. Yeah. So, yeah. How did that develop? And then how did that become more and more a part of your career? In life? Yeah. Well, again, we were, we were thinking about how to balance family life. Right. And so we came here and I was looking for something that would keep me interested in or engaged in and productive for a couple hours, you know, a day or mm-hmm. part time and ideally with writing and was really fortunate that I was recommended to Angie Appleby Purcell, mm-hmm. your predecessor. Mm-hmm. Yep. She was looking at expanding Prey ND. They were just kind of like at that point, I think it was kind of a singular voice that was yeah. offering reflections. And the idea to bring in different authors every day was new. And she was reaching a limit to what she could manage with that. So 
Um, I don't know anything about that. What's all too close to Every day, it's a hungry beast. Yeah. Got to keep feeding. Yeah. So I was, I was just to fall into that was a, was a real gift. Being able to start to coordinate contributors and edit what people submitted, and and then Angie was at that point was they were also revisioning the website, right? And right. Kind of rethinking everything that Faith and D could be. And so to be a part of those conversations, it's a great team here. And to be a part of this community in a way that was able to was able to share something of a the voice of faith from campus to people who are listening and everybody who receives the email. It was just it was a real gift. It was a real privilege. Yeah. And as our family grew and developed, kids went into school, my role was able to expand. And so was able to take a, a bigger a bigger role and and offer more. We moved to seven days a week. I yes. think it was just five days a week when I started. So right, right. And man, the kinds of connections that you make. I mean, every day, the kinds of stories of faithfulness that people submit every day. It's it's really humbling. Yeah, I always tell people that that's sort of the the secret sauce here in terms of what works so well about it is that it's not any one person's effort, but it's just like the beauty the diversity of the entire church and yeah. different stories and voices coming through that and certainly inspired. Okay. Well, how else can we tell these stories? Okay. The podcast and other ways we've done it, but it's really been important. Stacy, for you, as you, you know, you were here in the MDiv and now all of a sudden you're part of the administrative team of the MDiv leading these students in human and spiritual formation. What have been some of the touchstone points for you that have been really special? Students themselves, for sure, always the students themselves, but particularly the relationship between the religious for Holy Cross, because at one time it was, you know, seminarians, but they have a lot more seminarians and brothers Mm -hmm. being formed with the lay students. So there's such a uniqueness to the cohort model we have where we're training these folks alongside each other together for ministry in the church because they're going to work together in the church and just what that's able to do as far as like create dialogue, break down any false barriers or something, be able to speak into each other's lives, share a little bit of the beauty of what we got to share with our seminary and classmates, but to Mm. continuously help cultivate that in newer and newer generations of students. It's something that needs attention, right? It's not automatic. Like institutional memory only goes so far, especially during times like COVID, right? right? Like we've had to be really attentive to like, how do you continue to make that communal space? So always the students, they constantly surprise and humble me in all the most beautiful ways. So that's one touchstone. The other is the the theological faculty here at Notre Dame. So we're number one in the country as theological right. faculty goes. <laughs> World, reasons, not yeah. in the country, worldwide. Yeah, what am yeah. I saying? Sorry for selling us short. But the real colleagueship that exists in the theology department department here is not a surprise, but an utter blessing. I mean, I have folks who are world-class scholars who I can stop in the middle of the lounge and say, you know, I've been asked to just give a reflection on Jacob's Ladder, John Meyer, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) most world-renowned scholar Mm -hmm. of scripture that Pope Benedict acclaimed. And off the top of his head, he'll give me just a few thoughts on that. You know what I mean? (laughs) And you're kind of like, cool, cool, cool. Can I just cite you exactly? (laughs) That's great. Because it was not only scholarly, it was also incredibly pastoral at the same time. So that's been a complete gift for sure as well to, to get to be even a part of that environment. Yeah, it always strikes me as a gift here that you just encounter people who they found their vocations right. and their best. Totally. And you just think, well, I could never 
no matter, I don't care how much I studied or worked hard, I could, that's a gift. You know, it's yeah. just a gift to encounter people. In and the way. humility of that, right? So again, I, I get to work alongside world-renowned scholars. Ostensibly, they're my peers because we're both on the faculty at Notre Dame. But I obviously cannot do what they do, nor have I been trained to. But I really experience their respect for like, it is a precious thing to be able to form folks for ministry and to really call upon the expertise of others around them. So the the humility in that vocation as well, like there's nothing threatening about it. It's together, we'd make things better. Josh, you talked about writing kind of being this thread that developed throughout your time and eventually led you to Ave Maria. So yeah. can you tell us about your role at Ave Maria, what you do there? What is important about the work that your team does there and, and part of the ministry of the church? Oh yeah. Uh, it's been a great gift. I've been there for a year, just learning a ton. It's a great team. Ivan Marie is a is a ministry of the Congregation of Holy Cross. Mm-hmm. So we think about uh, the books that we that we publish and share as participating in that mission. And Holy Cross is grounded in family, kind of identity. The Holy Family is as as a model. So we think of the work that we do as building a community, a community of faith, kind of extending a lot of what people here experience on campus to a wider network. So. Yeah, we publish in three lines. We've got a high school theology textbook line. We do resources for parishes and ministers and then uh, general spirituality. But to be able to encounter the authors that we work with and then be a part of the conversations that our editors have with authors to develop ideas and kind of have a finger on the pulse of where the church is right now, what people are responding to, the conversations that people are having, that's a real gift. And like I said, I've been, I've been learning a ton. And it's, a, it's an exciting time. Ave is, I think, in a position to be growing and developing. There's new things on the horizon. So it's a crackerjack team. I feel really lucky. I'm catching up in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And of course, you know, our lives, our careers, they continue to progress, goes on. But as a family, so do your kids. Mm. And I know, you know, recently as your kids have grown up, you've experienced some of those transitions of kids moving out, kids going to college. What have been some of the faith moments during those times that you've encountered as you enter that phase of life? I think a spiritual director, I I just mentioned to him that we've always had family prayer together at night. That's, I mean, since, since Oscar was a toddler, as Josh referenced, you know, sitting around during grad school, even with, you know, visitors and guests and stuff like that. That's just what we do. We get together at night before bed for prayer, but we've always done that. And the spiritual director just recently, so our children are 22, 17, 16. He actually said to me, he's like, wait, you still do that? And then I'm like, Mm. well, yeah, we still, yes, that's what we do. And he said, that's a gift, right? right? To be able to just have that as an an assumed, this is how we end the day when we're all in the house together. You know, sometimes things come up and stuff like that. But this is how we end the day together. And it's part of kind of our shared life. I think that's been formative, not just in our relationship with God, but in our relationship as family unit that shares what's most important to us. Mm-hmm. And we would name, you know, our faith life as part of that. You asked what are some of the touchstones as far as faith moments. Some of them are also beauty, right? Some of them are also about transcendent experiences. Mm. So for example, the we made a trip to the Grand Canyon. Josh has, had always said, we must take the family to the Grand Canyon. Right. And I'm like, I feel no need to go to the Grand Canyon <laughs> in my life. I just don't need to. I was wrong about that, yeah. I want to say, for all those in Arizona. But We arrived at the Grand Canyon. It was an Easter trip, which means that we arrived on, it was Easter Sunday. We had been listening from the airport, driving out to the North Rim, I guess it is, or whatever the most common rim is, to the Notre Dame women's basketball team, like playing the final game. Oh, right. right? We arrive at the Grand Canyon with like a minute to go in this game. 
we step out of the, we get our key to the hotel room, the cabin. We like step out, we're like, Grand Canyon, holy cow. Quick, get in the room. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> right? We like click on the TV. We watch the shot. You like, know what we, I mean? We were there for like the last 30 seconds. When Enrique, <laughs> yeah. when Enrique yeah. 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 Hits, the, hits the buzzer yeah. beater. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was, so we're like the only, <laughs> the only people shouting in the middle of this Grand Canyon uh, resort at three o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> on Easter Sunday. <laughs> on Easter Sunday. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. This yeah. is a Notre Dame moment. Easter, Notre Dame basketball. Yeah, Grand Canyon. Okay. <laughs> So, but that entire experience of going to something like the Grand Canyon is in and of itself a shared moment of transcendence. And it's not just what you see, but the moments you share, right? Like we went out stargazing as a family, Mm -hmm. trying not to fall off the side of the rim kind of thing Mm because it's pitch black. But like those are moments that have deeply shaped us as a family. And that even in conversation with children who begin to struggle as teenagers or like going through college about like, I don't know, I have a hard time connecting with God. I don't know how this is going. Well, what are the other ways besides if prayer feels dry? What is a walk like? What is standing outside in a dark night and just being like, you know, so to be able to like point back to those, not only shared together, but to point back to them as ways Mm -hmm. to kind of find God again. Mm -hmm. Just to add on that, all those things are exactly right. Another way in which that manifests is with service. We've then that's taken a number of different forms through uh, that's been appropriate to our family life at different times. We've served breakfast at the at the Catholic Worker Hospitality House here in town. The one that fits right now for us is delivering food with St. Vincent de Paul Society, mm-hmm. the food pantry, mm-hmm. which is in itself just an amazing thing that our parish has a system for all that. And you can just plug in and we pick up food and go deliver it to people and have a short conversation. And, mm-hmm. But, you know, like if you look at the big picture, there's this rising pattern of disaffiliation in the church. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those decisions are made by young people before they even get to high school. It's like yeah. 13 is the average age. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for us, I think it's it's just been important that faith has been a real thing in the life of our family. It's not just something that we do, not just a routine that we go to mass on Sunday. That's the background in the conversations that we share as a family, how we decide to spend our time, where we want to go on vacation or, you know, the kinds of decisions that we make, the kinds of decisions that we shepherd our our kids through when they're Mm -hmm. thinking about college, you know, Mm -hmm. and encouraging them to take that to prayer. And the language of vocation is is interwoven with how we how we have discussions. So there's a lot of ways in which it kind of like embeds itself in the rhythms, rhythm of family. Yeah. But I think at the bottom, it's going to look different in every family. But the bottom of that is like. Faith has to be like a living thing that is is an active part of your life. And those are the bonds of faith and prayer and love that last, you know, even beyond the time where you can't all physically be in the same room praying together. And kids inherently grow up and, and go off and find their own vocations and lives. Yep. But there's that connective tissue that that always binds us that uh, it sounds like you're you're getting to see as your kids kind of enter into adulthood. Yeah. A little trick to that has been we learned this we got a little glimpse that this might be a thing as a married couple who both basically were trained from ministry in the church our children understanding that those aren't professions right like that your faith life is not just yeah. we, not yeah. just something yeah, we, yeah. you know yeah. what i mean we're doing a stations of the cross a campus wide stations of the cross in portland and we asked our son oscar at the time who probably was like i don't know 7 would you like to be one of the people who helps carry the cross sometime mm-hmm. you know what i mean he's like no i'd rather be a pilot right he's like <laughs> no, no, no 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 it's not it's not like a job like this is prayer <laughs> like everybody can pray so like beginning to understand and um help them find their own kind of vocation of being and vocation of doing like Mm. they can feel 
very called to serving the world in a particular way. And also, who are you in the world? Like, what is the particular way that you're called to holiness? What is Pope Francis would say in God Etienne Exaltate? Like, what little, not the whole gospel, not to the whole world, but what little part of good news is yours to kind of tell and represent in your little part of the world? Like, who are your people and your surroundings? And what's your responsibility, you know, for that as far as like what you feel called to? Yeah, and I'm struck by the fact that you both have lived that in your lives. I mean, you just celebrated, I'm aware, 25 years of marriage. So congratulations about that. What does holiness look like over the course of 25 years of marriage as you've as you've interacted with each other? Who have been some of the models who have shown you the way in that life, in that vocation? Go ahead. What were you going to say? You're well, so ready. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> kind of go back to one thing that you had mentioned earlier in theological terms, we put we talk about the Paschal mystery, mm. the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I think at an early stage, this goes back again to that kind of open-handed moment that I arrived at in my discernment around marriage. That stage, we had we kind of like connected that movement to the Paschal mystery to self-giving love, and that's been a pattern for us. I think. And again with Oscar, like when we found out that he was going to come when we were judge of volunteers, yeah. that was a big moment. And you named that too, Dan, as far as like, yeah, in hindsight. But hindsight at this point, at 25 years out, hindsight is our own like personal salvation history. Mm. Like we can look back, not at just the way that God has been faithful to the people, how God has been faithful to us in our relationship and in our family life and throughout our journey and say, God was faithful then. We should bank on the fact that God will be faithful into the future. That pattern of dying to self then has become something that's not just comes to us in big moments. We have to make big, big decisions, but we're having a spat about dinner or whatever it is to realize that this is a moment where I can step outside of myself and reach towards you. You can reach towards me. And in that self gift, we're going to encounter something new. There's going to be new life that comes that comes from that. That's just been a pattern. What, that we're not, we're not like, going to have a spat about dinner. We're going to have a spat about how dinner is cleaned up. <laughs> how do you want to go? On yeah, you know, like, and to assume that we're met with new life. It's not going to be cleaned up newly. And I shouldn't assume you're actually going to clean it up that way. You know what I mean? <laughs> so just noticing. <laughs> There's three recurring patterns. Here. Yeah, yeah, recurring yeah, patterns. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. But to your question about like examples, yeah. I think to this very point, I mean, the primary examples are our own parents. Mm -hmm. Like they're both just like marriage for life forever. That's not even a question. And you need that. We need that mm -hmm. to know that in the ups and downs, this between I'm pointing between us, like this is never in question, mm -hmm. but it is a question of how I choose to be good and loving and generous in it. And mm -hmm. that's, those are choices I have to make every day that's and can't right. take for granted. That's right. Yeah. It's not a given and you can't rely on it. Uh, you can't just because you made that decision yesterday doesn't mean it's uh, going to come easy this time around. I think you mentioned our parents and I would extend it even beyond that to family, you know. Oh, sure. The, just the gift of faith in looking back over 25 years. And this bleeds into how we think about family life with our kids, too. But like you're acutely aware of the gift of faith and even the idea of faith as a gift. Right. It's something that you receive. Yeah. When you think about, when I think about our families and the faithfulness in our families, it's easy to see how we've been given that gift, how that's been handed on to us just through the conversations, the traditions, the practices, think back to weddings and funerals and like just how the church has always kind of been a, a context for a shared life. It's a, it's I a, mean, I would go to friends too in this, like going mm -hmm. back to that, those roommates, mm -hmm. Teresa and Tamara. I mean, I was, re I was so ready in my very first night in BP 
where parents are gone. I didn't go to mass on Sunday morning and you hear everybody running down, you know, the stairs to BP's mass at 10 o'clock at night or whatever. And I wasn't going, I'm like, cool. Finally get to make my own choices. Mm, Freebie, right? And Teresa just looks up at me over, we're both studying. She's like, she knew I hadn't gone to mass and she's like, are you going down to mass? And I said, I wasn't planning to. And she said, do you want to get in a discussion on your immortal soul? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, I'd rather go to mass actually. (laughs) But like for me, that was the moment. Yeah. Like that's the moment where I'm choosing for myself. And it was someone else, Mm -hmm. right? Like it was a companion on the journey. And I didn't know that she was going to be a companion for this much of the journey who utterly helped. Think of those things like when I couldn't carry this, Mm -hmm. she was there to help me carry it. Mm And yeah, that was true of those friends. And we have a couple friends now, right, who are with us in the MDiv program who live in Milwaukee, the Blahas, who are just like a dear kind of like couple on the journey. Mm-hmm. Gosh, you know, look, after 25 years of marriage, too, it's easy to look back and, and understand what the church means when they say that marriage is a public reality. Mm-hmm. That's why we get married in a church building, right? Right. right. It's because it, the, the building represents the community and the marriage isn't just about the husband and the wife. There's There's a communal aspect to it. And that's like, you can look back and just see it at every point. There's been people who have surrounded us. They've guided us along the way. Yeah. That's what I, the weddings that we get to go to, right? I've just increasingly, I feel as though I've heard presiders make reference to the married couple, you know, just in the last few years, you know, all the people gathered here today are here to support you for your whole married life. They're not just here to celebrate with you today or go to a party or anything. We're here for you. Mm -hmm. And that just resonates with me so much more Mm -hmm. now, Mm -hmm. you know, to understand like, yeah, it takes the support of these people and I need to be able to lean on them too. We lean on them. It's really humbling. Like, oh, you're just like you just you get to these thresholds like 25 years and you yeah. look back and you just there's so much gratitude. Yeah. You know, you realize how much God has carried you through these people, through yeah. your family and friends and in your own family. Just so much gratitude for for what the blessings that that's that's offered. Yeah. There's an aspect of like looking back at your wedding photos and remembering who was there and, you know, how their lives have gone and some have passed away and and still pray for you. Um, others have gone through a lot of things and and. You just like marriage, like you don't know what you're going to experience that day, but there's that fidelity of that that promise to each other and that that community promise to you as a married couple. So, as a last question, then as we hit on holiness, and I'm specifically thinking of like a young engaged couple, some of these couples that you mentor mm-hmm. who might be really drawn up in each other and in their happiness and and their experience as a couple. Can you say something about how? those who are called to marriage are called to holiness in a unique way. And what would you say to a couple, a young couple thinking about that to, yes, think about your wedding day, think about all those things and the people who are going to be there, but think about how you're going to live a holy life as a couple. One is, and I think uh, looking back at our history of our marriage so far in 25 years, we've never been afraid to kind of like strike out in a new path. Mm -hmm. And some of the, I remember early on thinking like, how's, how should this go? Like, what should we be doing? I think every everybody when they just when they graduate from college is kind of like what what lane should I fall into, and I there's no such thing as a <laughs> as a lane to fall into right like you you're on your journey God has a plan has is calling you to use your gifts in a, in in the conditions and the circumstances that are falling around you it's not something that you need to look very far to find and it's going to lead you in unsuspecting and surprising ways. It was a thing for us to be able to let go of, at least for me, to be able to let go of like, this is the way things should be. Or 
we should be making this much money at some point, or we should be hitting these career marks at some point. And to just let that go and say, what is the work that God has placed in front of you right now? And when you, when you get your nose up and you look around, it's actually like the people within like a five foot radius. You know, it's like my wife and my kids there, like there's enough there to start growing. And once that is solid and steady, and you're finding work to do there that's leading, that's connecting you to, to God, other things fall into place. You find that the, a path emerges and priorities fall into, fall into line. I agree. I think for, especially for at that engaged couple point, prayer is important, but Josh and I don't pray well together. Like we don't pray the same way. What the types of prayer he's drawn to don't necessarily make me feel like I'm in conversation or connected with God. So we try to help one another prioritize our own prayer lives and spirituality, and then we share the fruit of those. So we have conversation about those and have that kind of like, if you will, spiritual intimacy, the same way we would have other kinds of intimacy. So prayer is important so that you can even know what God's will is in something. And of course, discernment is really important for engaged couples. But I want to be really careful about, especially the world the way it is now for young folks now, it can be really paralyzing to have to try to discern well. And so I just want to say to that, God will bless the work of your hands. Mm -hmm. If you are trying to find God's will, it's okay to just choose something, choose a path, and just trust that God will bless that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be exactly right. It's enough to just do it in good faith and just try to continue walking on that path. God will be faithful through that. And no decision is final. Yeah, there's there's, always going to be another one. Yep, it leads to another step and roads that you uh, didn't realize would lead somewhere all of a sudden kind of come back around and, Mm -hmm. you know, paths connect and yeah, we've absolutely seen that. Yeah. Well, I think that's the beauty of, of your story, hearing your story 25 years into marriage. And you know, it makes us marvel and wonder, you know, what God has in store for you and all of us next. So Stacy and Josh, just thank you for the time, for sharing that story. I really enjoyed it, learned some new things about some, some dear friends of mine. But also, I think there's going to be a lot for people to pray about and really aspire to as they hear about your lives and your marriage. So just thank you for your service to Notre Dame, to the Congregation of Holy Cross, to Faith in D, of course, um, just to our whole Notre Dame family. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. All right. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in D podcast. As always, we invite you to share this episode, to rate it, especially if you liked it, and to just take part in all that we have at Faith in D, especially our daily gospel reflection. You can find that at faith.nd.edu, as well as the podcast and everything else we do. Until next time, you'll be in our prayers. God bless you. Mm-hmm.